morning, everybody. On this wonderful hot day. Thank you for the flu we're taking home with us. It's probably from all the other South Africans and the tubes. Great. Well, I'll leave my kids to stand up. They're such wonderful children. Come on, Jared Campbell, Sarah, there they are. All their beauty. Thank God they have their mother's genes in them. And she's from England. She's from Lancashire. She's a Lancashire lass. She's a lovely lassie, Bagum. Well, it's good to be with you guys. We've had a great holiday. And uh, you get us at the end of our trip. So let's trust God for his anointing this morning. And I don't know how uh, Paul can be so bold as to trash the local rugby teams with Corbis sitting right there. Actually, we went to watch the rugby yesterday and we enjoyed it. It was great stuff. Colossians chapter 1, please. Am I very loud or am I just me? Me. Okay. I want to speak this morning about a great view of a great Christ. And this is part of my illustrations. Thank you, babes. Yeah, that's good. Have pulpit, will travel. I'm a traveling preacher. And uh, technology is not really up to scratch in the first world here. Thank you, Paul. Oh, that's fine. That's fine. It's getting any younger. And uh, so I want to talk about a great view of a great Christ. Uh, in a couple of days, three days, is it? It'll be, or four days, 2009. Can you believe it? Um, it's unbelievable how, how time has flown. And uh, round about now, you start to do your audits, don't you? Audit on 2008, how your year was, and um, how did you do? You reflect on your moments of failure. How many of you had failure this year, like I did? Anybody? Yes. Rest of you Pharisees, right? <laughs> Lying so-and-sos. <clears throat> you reflect on your moments of breakthrough. How many of you had breakthroughs this year? I did. Learned how to cook. Uh, <laughs> Tell you how to do it. Uh, moments of victory. We're all on wonderful journeys, all individual. No, no journey is identical. We're all at different places. Isn't it amazing how God and His greatness can work with all of us exactly where we are, uh, conforming us into the image of Jesus? Uh, Jesus is the, the one to whom we are being conformed. And we've had moments of, of great uh, spiritual and uh, purity, we've had moments of sinful failure. And uh, so as we look at the new year, um, I think we need more than just a New Year's resolution. I want to lose some weight in the new year. Um, I want to look like Trev, he used to look, before he got married. Uh, I want to be slim. Um, my second son wants to learn French. <laughs> and we want to win the, the rugby again, as is our habit. Um, so some of us want to, want to lose weight, we want to do all kinds of things, and um, resolutions are good in themselves, but there is one abiding north star, there's one true north that will help us grow in what God wants for us, and that's a high view of Christ, a great view of a great Christ, that's the standard, it does, I don't mind what kind of um, diet you follow, we could follow a thousand diets to lose weight, because those are very genetically specific. 
but certainly the one universal North Star that will ensure that 2009 is in many ways uh, qualitatively better than 2008 is if we have a growing revelation of the greatness of Christ. And so I'm going around the world throwing hand grenades as my, as my job. I really am loud. I'm probably going to get louder, so you might want to turn it down. Thank you. Um, I, I, my, my calling, my contribution to my generation is to throw hand grenades against doubt, against unbelief, against timidity, against fear. And I'm sick and tired of nervous Christians. I'm tired of the rubbish from the world. I'm tired of the media's junk that tells us that Jesus was some kind of limp-wristed, lettuce-eating, bohemian fairy who will help you have a better life. Dr. Phil Oprah kind of rolled in one. Some kind of eccentric Jewish mystic running around Palestine saying, if you're feeling a bit stressed, add a little lavender to your bathwater. <laughs> that kind of Jesus we need to kill in our minds. This world, you see, the last generation has produced a, a presented a very weak Jesus. And so no one wants that Jesus. I don't want that Jesus for crying out loud. But that's our advantage now. Because they're not expecting a presentation of Christ as he really is. They're not expecting much other than the bohemian fairy thing. And so when you come with Christ as God of the universe, God the creator, who rules and reigns in unparalleled beauty and power, when you come with that attitude, we have an advantage that will totally disarm our generation. If you're in Uganda, we would say? Amen. 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 All right. And so I want to... Um, stir in our hearts a desire could we leave holy spirit could we leave today and could you give us a growing hunger for a higher view of christ christ is the north star paul said look to christ keep your eyes fixed on jesus um there's a lot of shaking going on and uh, men's hearts are failing them now's the time to bring christ into our generation to imitate christ and our high view of christ will inform our missiology what we do in the church, what we do through the church, what we do in our lives, will be a reflection of what we think about Christ. Yeah. I love that. You know, even if you sin this coming year, which none of you are planning to, but you never know, your mother-in-law might come visiting, you might be forced to. <laughs> joking. She might come, but I'm not joking about that bit. But even if we do sin, John says, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Amen. Jesus. Amen. The weakest definition of human existence, sin, even that, the way out of that and the way to have that covered is through Christ, high view of Christ. And then if you are successful, so if on the one side you have sinful failure, you still got to draw that up into repentance into Christ. But if you are successful on the other end, it's because of Christ who dwells in you. So it's Christ when you're weak and Christ when you're strong. Christ when you're a failure, Christ when you're victorious. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. That's the Christ we are recommending this morning. And so I want to really encourage you this, this morning to go to God and say, God, you have to enlarge my view of Jesus. No more fairy, bohemian fairy stuff. I want to see him, Revelation 19, on his white horse, with real blood of real enemies. I know this might sound a little aggressive to uh, English ears. But Jesus is very aggressive. He really is. That's the Jesus our generation needs. I saw all the English people and 500 South Africans yesterday uh, at the rugby looking aggressive, very aggressive, and shouting aggressively. Um, and so I want to read from Colossians, don't I? Verse 15, this is about Christ. Let's read it together. This is the English Standard Version. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all the creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Our generation is hungry for a presentation of Christ that is compelling. I do not believe the lie that the West and Europe does not want Christ. There's a certain kind of feeble Christ they don't want. I don't want a mother. But the Christ of the Bible, who rules as we've seen in Colossians, who created all things, all things were made for him and through him and by him. There, it even goes into bad English. There's nothing that is made that was not made by him. That's the Christ our generation needs. Mark Driscoll says, Our experience is the longer and harder you preach, the younger and more secular crowd you draw, provided you keep it all about Jesus. I don't think he means it's the length of the sermon. I don't think he means the octane or the, or the, or the peri-peri source of the sermon, which is not a bad thing. Some of us could do with a baptism in peri-peri. But I think it's the kind of Jesus they present. That's what our generation needs. And so I want to just give you four areas in which Christ is great. As a reminder, many of these things you know, but I want us to take this with us into... Uh, into 2009. Number one, Christ is eternally great. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Verse 2, all things were created, uh, verse 3, all things were created by Him. Look at verse 1, John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's incredible. John is trying to do what No human being should really try to do. Let's try to describe the indescribable. But to help the Christians understand that he's not just some kind of a carpenter who can help you when you have a migraine, he takes you to where he should begin, to the eternal greatness of Christ. That he was born a son, a a child, but he was always a son. Isaiah 9, we read it this Christmas, didn't we? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. There has never been a time when Christ the Son did not exist. John is saying, you know, you used to be able to say you can take it to the bank, but you're not sure if the bank will be there tomorrow. But you can take this to the bank, the old bank. You can take it to the bank that Christ is able to help you. This is no ordinary carpenter. This is no ordinary human being. This is God the Son, pre-existent, pre-eternal. There never has been a moment when Christ did not exist. And that's why we, we reject Russellitism. Russellite is not Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah is the name of, Hebrew name for God. They're not Jehovah's Witnesses of Jehovah, the Jehovah's Witnesses. They're Witnesses of Russell. They're Russellites. And they rewrote John 1. 
front, uh, they wrote, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was a God. And they had to uh, doctor their, their, their document because they don't believe in the deity of Christ. If you want to know whether a church is a cult or whether a book is cultish or whether there's rubbish in it, ask yourself this question. What do they do with Jesus? Christ was eternally great. My friends, this is what you need. This is what this generation needs, a revelation that he's always existed. He's always been God. There never was a time when God wasn't God. Sooner or later, one of the kids is going to ask you, Daddy, who made God? And then you've got to say, nobody, because whoever made God is God. There was a time before time when God was God because he's God. That God is God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. He's eternally great. My friends, why must you know that? Well, you need to know that because sometimes you, you can't just hold on to the promises on the fridge magnets in your house. You can't just hold on some superficial little book of some lady's revelation of going into heaven and seeing your grandmother talk to Titus. You need more than that. You need something substantial. And if we approach these truths, and if we begin our day every morning, Christ, you are eternally great. Christ, there has never been a time when you did not exist. You came from glory. You were born a human being. You returned to glory. One day you'll come back. That's where you can hold on, rather than a few little verses you might have learned along the way. Secondly, from Colossians, we learn that Christ is cosmologically great. All things, verse 3, were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. By him all things were created in heavens on, heaven and earth, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What is he saying? John is saying, this is the creator. This is not some weird itinerant Jewish mystic running around doing good. This is God the Creator. It's incredible. Stepping onto the planet. I'm so tired of atheists. Atheists and agnostics. Because they're so intellectually indefensible. I don't know everybody here today. Maybe you are an atheist. I'd love to chat to you because I'm telling you, I don't believe in the God you think we believe in. I'm tired of Christians being backfooted about the universe. There's so much evidence for the existence of a creator. You have to will yourself. There's a, a modern French um, uh, apologist, uh, rather, um, scientist, who actually says, We need a new theory. Darwin has embarrassed us intellectually academically, scientifically, intellectually. It's an inferior doctrine. We need something more, more substantial intellectually. This is a guy who says he's not a Christian. He's an agnostic. Doesn't think he can believe. Not sure whether God is really here. Friends, we need to actually find our courage again and look the world in the eye and say, the evidence is there. The universe says God created the heavens and the earth. There is enough intellectual evidence. There's enough scientific Evidence. See, there's no cosmos without Christ. That's the point of Colossians. That's what Paul's saying. He writes to this church in the Colosseum, and they're struggling with, 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 with all kinds of mysticism and heresy about who Christ is. Christ has been overshadowed. And so Paul writes to them to correct that, and he's saying there's no cosmos without Christ. The other day, Paul Callis of the University of California um, 
they snapped one of the first photographs of a planet outside our solar system. And he said this, I nearly had a heart attack. If you're South African, he would have said, I nearly died. <laughs> I nearly had a heart attack. In South Africa, we're building a kilometer square um, um, telescope. I hope no one steals it. But it's a kilometer square. Can you imagine the glorious photographs? You know, the Hubble telescope has sent back picture after picture after picture of the greatness of God and the power of His might. It's wonderful. And if you go inwardly into the body, forget about the stars in the universe, billions and billions of stars that God counts by name and calls them out. The, 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 the hymn writer Catherine Davis, no relation of Nick, who wrote Rumpa Pum Pum, which was one of her, her least memorable moments. Drummer boy, she wrote. She also wrote a, a song, a hymn, and she spoke about the sun and the star, and she says, the star in its courses, the sun in its orbit, obediently shine. God organizes. The other day we watched The Day After Tomorrow. Have you seen that movie? And I'm not quite sure whether Al Gore is right, but I think this, this game will be over when God presses, eh, game over. Let's leave a responsible carbon footprint, shall we? Let's, let's do our recycling. It's important. It's part of life. But Christ is cosmologically great. He began it, and the Bible says he will roll up the heavens like a garment when it has served his purpose. My friends, the universe does not serve our purpose. The goal of the universe is not orgasm. The goal of the universe is not peaceful living. It's not 2.4 kids, a car, and an insulated house with double glazing. The goal of the universe is the purpose of God. And when the goal is completed, when the purpose is finished, God will wrap it up like a cloud, like a garment. He's cosmologically great. Nearly had a heart attack. One scientist said that we, we have overlooked 96% of the universe. Overlooked 96% of the universe. Christ is cosmologically great. We're taking back courage this morning. Because if you, most people just think that Christ is, is extra uh, text in a movie. If you took Christ's name out of the text, out of the movies and out of books, there'd be not much movie, would there? Not much dialogue. We want to remind our generation that Christ is cosmologically great. For by him all things were created, things invisible in heaven and on earth, thrones or dominion, rulers or authority. Paul's just packing image upon image upon image. He's saying there is nothing over which he does not rule. He says in Revelation 19, on his head are many crowns. It's not Dr. Zeus having many hats on. The, the, John is just saying, same John is saying, um, how can I describe the fact that there's nothing Anywhere that is not under Christ's rule, he says, oh, he had many diadems. He had many crowns upon his head. And so the Dutch prime minister, the old prime minister and theologian in the last century said, there is not one inch over which Christ does not say, mine. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the victory. Friends, we have to say that when we diagnose with cancer. We have to say that when things don't go well. When our world gets challenged, you need to know that Christ is cosmologically great. Because he's eternally great. Thirdly, Christ is experientially great. In John 1 verse 4 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In him was life, and, he, and, in, and the life was the light of men. Friends, this is not just good poetry. Life is supposed to be experienced. Light is supposed to be entered into. Jesus was born for us to experience him. He came to bring us something tangible, something that we can experience. You see, what we do is we're the people of the, of the overcompensation. So in the 80s, the, the, theolo- the theology was mostly, or 70s and 80s, was prosperity theology. So it's right over here, that God's worried about your money, and if you believe hard enough and pray hard enough, then your Volkswagen will become an Aston Martin. People believe that. And God was wanting to get our attention about our money, because he did want to reach the world. It takes money to reach the world. He had to prize open our grubby little fingers to realize that he is actually our source, as we heard this morning. Don't worry about tomorrow. And so in this kind of experiential health and racket spa in the Alpine forest kind of theology where God's just about you, he's your butler, he's your father Christmas, he, he meets all your needs, give me, give me, give me, my name is Jimmy. And the other verse in Proverbs, the leech has two daughters, give, give, they cry. That kind of theology, Lord, it's about me, it's about me, hello Lord, it's about me. Oh, we had a good laugh of the day. We were with the Davises this whole week and uh, we were saying, we'd love a white Christmas. And Davis just sarcastically said, why God, why? And we had a good laugh, because basically that sums up the Christian, many Christians' life is, there was no white Christmas. Why God, why didn't you give me a white Christmas? I tithed for crying out loud. I prayed with faith. I bound, I loosed, I spat. <laughs> so we're all here, experiential. I've got to feel his presence. I've got to, I've got to feel hot on the one side, cold on the other, twing, tingly on the bottom, all in one go. But feel it in the worship. I didn't feel it. So what do we do? We overcorrect, don't we? Because we know this is very superficial. This is a very asward stuff. It's not much about God, this kind of theological position. So we overcorrect to overhear. We would no longer ex- expect to experience them. And we overintellectualize. Christ wants to be experienced. Some of us do need to be hot on the one side and cold on the other and plastered to the ceiling. You know people I'm talking about. Christ does want to bless us. God does want to. We are his sheep. The sheep of his pastures. You see, the Christian faith is never supposed to be something to be entered into intellectually. It is never something just to be formalized about or pontificated about or debated. Christ wants to be experienced. And so the same John, he actually said, Uh, in his letter, that which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it. I think what God wants to do in 2009 is actually increase our hunger for him. I think we've lost the wonder. You know, the kids are great. They're like, wow. We've got a guy in our church He's not a kid, he's 21, half dead. But he, whenever something good happens to somebody else, he'll, say to, he'll, say, he'll, act, he'll enter into the joy as though he got the thing. It's incredible. It's a lovely man to be around. But there are many Christians, oh, well, yeah, he's probably stole it. <laughs> or it'll break, it'll break, it'll break, yes. Well, how come I didn't get that? 
we're funny like that. Jan and I, we entered into a whole new adventure, which is mind-blowing. And I was explaining to a friend uh, who was on the team with us in those days that what we're going to do. And, he, and his response to me was, oh, I can't do that. I said, we're not talking about you. We're talking about me. <laughs> it's not about you. It's about me. It's not theoretical. It's not intellectual. And we do need to worship God with our brains. We do need to think. That's another problem in some of our uh, uh, part of the body of Christ. But Christ came to bring life. That's what we've heard. That's what we've seen with our eyes. What you've looked upon. What we have to do is reclaim the wonder. I love John Piper. He says that wonder has, been for, has, been, has um, dried up, has shriveled up like a forgotten peach in the back of the refrigerator. We're no longer childlike with Christ. We're no longer in awe. So when someone says, our verse this morning is John 3.16, all the Pharisees go, ah, couldn't he find something a little deeper than that? There's nothing deeper than for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, you sinner. Nothing deeper than that. Sense of wonder, sense of sitting on the edge of our seat, like Ezra Pound's um, character in one of, one of his writings. He says, I, I, I stretch, I, I guzzle the truth with outstretched ears. I guzzle the truth, he's mixing up metaphors, with outstretched ears, sitting on the edge of our seat on the inside, sitting on the front row of our lives, expecting God, expecting the unusual, expecting Christ to manifest himself instead of being a Pharisee. Who See, the Pharisees, they, they studied all the wonder. They interpreted all the scriptures. They knew all the stuff. They had all the theory, all the philosophy. And then when Jesus came, and when there were miracles and stuff that was dramatic, all they could say was, your disciples haven't washed their hands. <laughs> Crying out loud. Those disciples would have been good mothers, eh? Wash your hands, put your jersey on. The greatness of Christ. You've got to come back to that because there's nothing on TV that recommends the greatness of Christ. And even the rubbish on Christian TV, half of which should go off yesterday, doesn't talk about the greatness of Christ. It just talks about, gimme, gimme, my name is Jimmy. Pray, send him $50 and receive the original piece of the cross, which is multiplying in our storeroom as we speak. Hunger for Christ, hunger for his presence. My friends, you know, this is a discipline. I've discovered that, that being in love with Jesus is a discipline. Don't you find, Paul, even like being married is a discipline, eh? You've got to think about your wife. You can't get married and say, see you in 20 years' time, hope you have a good life. You have to think about it. And when it comes to Christ, I have to ask myself, Pete, is the wonder seeping out? Is the wonder being leached out, blanched out by the cares of the world, choked up by the deceitfulness of riches, by the, by the frailty of person, my personality? Am I talking about God rather than talking to God? Even in our worship, I believe not have a history of worship leading. And I know what it's like to crank up a dead crowd. And you get to song number eight and suddenly they come alive, but it's too late, we've got to preach now. Musos all over the world. Some of the most desperately disappointed people in the universe. Hey, Trev. <laughs> but if we come with a sense of wonder of what Christ has done for us, it's a discipline. Now, we live 
uh, in, in arguably one of the most magnificent places in the universe. Somerset West, we don't have to look that up. Um, it's right near Cape Town. And our, our entire, the opposite side of our entire road, it's a cul-de-sac, is a vineyard. And we look onto the Hottentot Holland mountain range. It's a very hard place to live. We have squirrels that our cat has decided if you could live, but the rest have been murdered by our cat. Um, it's a beautiful place. Sun, vineyards, you know, there's no round thing in the sky, hot. Sun. And you know, I, I reverse out of my driveway, I look into the river mirror and I see beauty. And I've been telling my children for the last seven years we've been there, familiarity, need, not breed, contempt. Familiarity, need, not breed, contempt. Some of us have got too familiar with Jesus. Too familiar with the workings of theology. Too familiar with, the, with even our, the worship experience. That we've, we've lost the sense of wonder that Christ wants to restore. A sense of wonder. Now the Morav- Moravians in 1727, they had an outpouring of unbelievable proportions which made people sell themselves into slavery. And they went all over the world bring, bringing the gospel. And Zinzendorf, Count Zinzendorf the leader, to, to, to describe why this had occurred, how this had occurred, he said this, it was a sense of the nearness of Christ. 2009, you know what you need? You don't need a diet. You, you, you benefit from a diet, but we need more than that. We need Christ in 2009. And he's not far away. Hudson Taylor, when he, uh, the famous missionary to China, his biographer wrote that he had a transformational moment in his life. And he said, he was now a joyous man, a bright and happy Christian. He had been a toiling and burdened one before, with latterly not much rest of soul. Whenever he spoke at meetings, after that, a new power seemed to flow from him. And in the practical things of life, a new peace possessed him. So so Taylor was asked, what did he think of this biographer's comment? And he said, you know, simply, all I came to do was to appreciate Christ in a new way. He said, all the time, I felt assured that there was in Christ all I needed. But the practical question was how to get it out. When my agony of soul was at its height, the Spirit of God revealed to me the truth of our oneness with Christ that I'd never known it before. Duncan Campbell, the revivalist, said, The baptism of the Holy Spirit, in its final analysis, is a revelation of Jesus. We Pentecostal, Charismatics, Apostolics, whatever we are, we've made the charismatic experience of Christ, the charismata, the end point, when there's supposed to be a vehicle that takes us to Christ. Christ is the, is the result. There are people now who are worshipping miracles and signs and wonders, and we need miracles and signs and wonders. But they are a vehicle, they are a doorway that take us to Christ. We should appreciate Christ. What matters, Patterson said, is that by all means, at the command of the Holy Spirit, we should come to appreciate Christ. He is experientially great. And you know, even when I don't experience him, he's experientially great. Some of us are so tied to our circumstances. We we laughed because it was funny, but it was pathetically funny when Nick said, Why God? Why? Because it's so human. See, I've been tithing since Air Force days, national service, which is, and it's hard to believe, 30 years nearly. Every paycheck, Jan and I've tithed. And do you know, I think I provide a service to our town 
which is to absorb into my tires all the sharp objects that our town has as a service to everybody else. So I absorb that. You'd think an angel would come between the nail and my tire because I'm a tither, for goodness sake. You know, even once our geezer exploded. A boy, boiler. A geezer's an old guy. Geezer's an old guy like Ed. No geezer. Our boiler exploded. And the price of diesel went up. And God knows I'm a tither. How come a special dispensation was not created for me? Christ. Thirdly, the sacrificially great. The book of Hebrews is a great book for lawyers, or if you like to argue, because there's one long, fat argument that Christ is better, Christ is greater. In fact, the word better than, the phrase better than, appears more than 13 times um, in, in the whole book. And the writer to the Hebrew, we're not sure who it is, but um, some people say it's Paul, others uh, like to stir it up and say it could be a woman. Leave that with you. Um, why not? Uh, and, and, and the writer says that Christ in, in the whole letter, that Christ is, is bigger and greater than their national heroes. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Abraham, uh, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, he's greater than the institutions of the priests and the sacrifices and all their treasures from the past. He, he's, he's, he's greater than everything. The blood of Jesus is greater than the blood of, uh, of bulls and goats. It speaks of better things than the blood of Abel. Uh, incredible. Better than more than, stronger than, greater than, over and over, talks about the greatness of God, the greatness of Christ. In fact, Hebrews 11 is not just about faith, it's about men and women having faith in the greatness of God. Even though they weren't saved, even though they lived in holes in the ground and went destitute and were, were cut in two um, and treated abominably of this world, of whom the world was not worthy, the, the, the writer says. Despite all that, they overcame it by faith, not in faith, not in a formula, not in some te teaching on faith. They overcame all their obstacles, even though they died in their brokenness, not seeing the promise, because they were committed to the greatness of God in Christ. It's wonderful. There's a great word that we're learning in our theological st studies, propitiation. Can you say that? Propitiation. Propitiation is the satisfaction of God's just demands on, uh, for judgment on the sinner. Here it goes like this in Hebrews 2 verse 17. God is holy. God is just. God cannot tolerate a moment, a fraction, an iota of sin. He has this impossible standard that none of us can attain. And those of us who... who who, who come to Christ, and those of us who, who still come into Christ, you'll remember, and you'll know that, that religion kills you. You don't know if you've done enough. You don't know if you've prayed enough prayers, if you've slaughtered enough chickens, if you've lit enough candles, because this God seems to be so unreasonable. Impossible standards. God the Son comes, born a human being, and fulfills the holy standards of God. And all the wrath, all the anger... All the, the frustration with sin is placed on Jesus on the cross. Jesus did not do a deal with the devil. Chris de Berg said they were Spanish train, was it? The, the God and the devil were on the train and they were playing cards. No, the devil wasn't even consulted. He wasn't even brought into the situation. You, you'll see Easter 
plays where you've got Jesus in white with a gold sash and a sword and angels in white with him and they're fighting and over here you've got all these terrible uh, grotesque devils. Some of you guys would do quite well here. Uh, you wouldn't have to act actually. Um, and they're all gruesome and, and, and the devil's fighting, the de- fighting against Jesus and then the devil loses. And then all go, hallelujah, you know, with Freddie Mercury singing Barcelona or something. We're chuffed because, you know, Carmen blaring forth that Christ is one. You know that kind of, you know what I'm talking about, huh? Take my word for it. It wasn't like that at all. When the Bible says that Christ triumphed over, the, over Satan and he disarmed the principalities and powers, Colossians, and he made a public spectacle of them. He didn't go near the devil. He didn't touch the devil. He didn't smack the devil. He didn't go boo to the devil. All our salvation transaction was Jesus and the Father. He took his blood into the holies, uh, Holy of Holies and he did the transaction with God. He appeased the anger of a holy God. Christ is great sacrificially. Christ is great for you in his sacrifice on the cross. And so God was perfectly satisfied. And so I quoted earlier, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. You know what the devil does? The devil does not live in, uh, in South Sussex like you think he does. The devil actually is often in the, God, in the Lord's presence. You know that? The scripture says, devil, what are you doing? And God says, where, where have you been? Now I've been to and fro. So he accuses the brethren. Well, to whom does he accuse the brethren? He accuses them, well, to two major, major players, God and yourself. The devil lies to you, doesn't he? How many of you had the devil speak to you this morning? I did. Speaks to me, loves me. The devil loves me. Can't get enough of me. Talks to me all day long, on and on and on. The devil wants to move me and you from a place of security to a place of insecurity. Has God said? Does God love you? Did God call you? Will God be faithful? Is he with you? It's the oldest Genesis. Did God say, if you eat of this fruit? Did he really? If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, the devil says to Jesus. And so he comes into the presence of the Father and he says, God, you know that guy of yours, Ed? You know, he actually lied in front of the whole church. He told them that he cooked one and a half kgs of pasta. And he knows it's not actually true. He cooked 1.275 kgs. And the Father looks in the Lamb's Book of Life. Ed, oh, Ed's there. He's one of ours. The devil goes and looks for somebody else. That's what it means. Don't you sometimes feel that God's not happy with you? Don't you sometimes feel God's a little bit irritated with you? A lot of people live like that. God is angry with them. They need a revelation of this. They really do. That all the anger that needs to be felt, Jesus felt it. The Father turned his face from Jesus. Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the cup that Christ didn't want to drink. Let this cup pass from me. Not my will, but your will be done. And so when God is angry, God is not being, uh, uh, J.R. Packer says, resentful or infantile or childlike in his anger. His anger is a function of his holiness. The holy revulsion of God against that which contradicts his holiness. It issues in the positive outgoing of the divine displeasure. And in Christ, this anger is fully propitiated. You've got to believe that in 2009.
Because you can't do the works that God wants you to do. You can't hear sermons like, take your world, preach the gospel. If in the back of your head, there's this abiding, gnawing thing that God is angry with you. Some people don't feel forgiven. Some people are still dealing with, with the memories of former sins. They're bound by the shame and by the lies of the devil. When it's under Christ's blood, when Christ's blood has removed it from them, as far as the east is from the west, an infinite distance. You must know that Christ is sacrificially great, and this is where he's great, where all your sin, the, the hymn writer says, that's why I'm a Calvinist. The hymn writer says, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, sins I have committed, sins I will commit, are nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Bless the Lord, bless the Lord, O my soul. That wonderful song. It is well with my soul. It's not well because I feel it's well. It's not well because I had a quiet time this morning. It's not well because I'm feeling I'm accessing God lately. It's not well because I'm having a a great run of uh, with no impure thoughts this week. Therefore, it's well with my soul. My wife and I haven't fought for two minutes. It's well with our soul. Well, it's just an example. It's at least least five. Hebrews 2.17, Therefore Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, when Jan and I took over uh, Assemblies of God Church, we were young and stupid. Well, I was young and stupid. Jan was young. Um, I think I was about 25, 26, and I thought to myself, how hard can this be? <laughs> Don't be leadership all my life. Can manage this. And we've been in ministry 22 years, and it's been one of the interesting thing, most interesting things I could ever do. It's very difficult. We make it look easy, we can teach you how to do that. It's a gift. Just hide your terror. <laughs> Smile and wave. We teach people how to do that. Make it look easy. But you know, I hope in 2009 that the story of this church will be that everybody was really behind the leaders. Really behind the leaders. And you know how you get behind the leaders? You go to God on propitiation. Because I'm telling you, in 22 years, the amount of resistance I have received from people because they feel God is angry with them because they haven't dealt with Hebrews 2.17. And so I become the focal point, the Velcro of all their inferiority and all their insecurity because I in the pla- stand, in a sense, in the place of God in a non-weird way. You know what I mean? I'm the leader. I'm the father. I'm the dad, along with the other dads, the other elders. And we take people's insecurity. We take people's low levels of contribution. We take their cynicism and their criticism. And, you, you know, the, the only way I keep saying is this. There's a tiny measure of our own causation there. Perhaps we've caused a bit of the stress. I'm telling you, 46 years I've been in the church. All my life I've been in church. I don't think people are at war with their elders. People are at war with themselves because they don't feel God smiles on them. That's the problem. I'm not saying there are any issues here. This is great. I just want to make this point. 2009, we want to go places with this church. This church is poised for amazing moments in the history of this, of this nation. This church. Like you paid your dues. Like you've done your time. 
This, this church, I said that when I was here last, this church is coming out of an adolescence into maturity. It's a new day for this church. And we need everybody on board. And the way to do that is not necessarily to say, oh, I'll do this or I'll do that. It's to actually ask yourself the question, do I feel the pleasure of God on my life? Settle that. And your elders will bask in the overflow of that love and that support. That's free. But now that's a good time for Ugandan. Hallelujah. Amen. 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 Christ destroyed the devil. Verse 14 of Hebrews 2. Destroyed the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He destroyed the power of the devil who has controlled people. How many of you are afraid of dying? You should be because it's right up there on human concerns. That in taxes. Christ destroyed the power of the devil. How do you do that? By doing the deal with the Father. That's how he destroyed the power of the devil. And so this, this coming year, let's ask, God, won't you, as an abiding uh, description of the quality of my life for 2009, won't you help me to do all I can and which, which really is just open your ears and look. There's not much else you can do. And invite this great view of this great Christ to wash over you. My friends, you want to change your marriage? Get a new view of Christ. You want to live in full-throttled singlehood? Singleness is not a curse. You want to use your singleness as a gift for God? Get a revelation of the greatness of Christ. Your family, you want to bring up children? Expose them to a view of a greatness of Christ, this great gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm grateful to my parents for many things. I always feel that I learned apostolic values from my parents. And when we launched out on our new adventure that Jan and I are on, my dad, uh, who's not going to say he, he's the most spiritually mm, out there kind of guy, sent me the words of a hymn. Just, my mother obviously typed the email. It's all in caps. That's <laughs> cute. And she taught this, the first verse of a hymn. It goes like this. Rouse then soldiers, rally round the banner, ready, steady, pass the word along. Onward, forward, shout the loud hosanna. Christ is captain of the mighty throng. That's what I need in my genes growing up. My parents' view of a large Christ. There's a wonderful gift we pass on to our children. They don't need your money. They don't need your old piano and granny's old broken clock. They need a revelation of the largeness of Christ. Let's ask him for that this year. Amen. Amen. Amen.